Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor of Karen Counseling, and I am up here about once a year. So this is my time. Uh, as Pastor Dan says, he likes to remind people that I'm a pastor here, because uh, I do a lot of my ministry down in the basement, uh, which is kind of where I like it. Um, but it's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, before we read today's passage, I want to look at the context for a minute. Um, today's passage is really a response or a contrast to verses 3 through 10, uh, which Pastor Dan will be preaching next week. So we're a little out of order. Uh, and since we haven't dug into those verses yet, let's do a quick preview right now. In the preceding passage, we're going to be very, very brief here, because uh, Dan will get into it in length next week. But in the preceding passage, uh, verses 3 through 10, Paul warns of the many evils of the world, uh, very tempting evils that are seeking to ensnare us, and in doing so, to bring about ruin and destruction in our lives. Okay. All right, thank you. Uh, Paul specifically looks at the tempting power of money, in addition to laying out the connection between succumbing to these temptations and teaching contrary to Christ's message of faith. Uh, today's passage, however, instructs Paul's reader, Timothy, in a different way. So we'll read our passage, 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16, which is page 993 in your Red Bible. You can grab one of those. They're under the chair in front of you. It reads, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. And Father, we ask that you would use your word to minister to our hearts and to our minds this morning. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to work in us, 
to bless us, to encourage us, to rebuke us. We pray all of these things to your glory, in your son's name. Amen. We live in a dark and a sinful world. That is a constant fact. And yet there are times in history where it seems as if the darkness of the sin of the world is just a bit more obvious, as if it's easier to see. And not just that, but it's as if it's more present, as if sin and darkness seem to be looming around every corner. During these moments, the presence of sin seems palatable. It was a time such as this many years ago when there was a little girl who went into hiding with her parents and her sister. The little girl and her family were Jews, and the Nazis were coming for them. Their people were being hunted down, shipped off, sent to die in the misery and squalor of inhumane living conditions, torturous experiments, brutal murder. For this little girl and her family, the sin and darkness of the world had taken on the form of the Nazi forces as they swept through their nation, their villages, finally arriving at their doorstep, seeking out their ruin and their destruction. And so the little girl and her family hid themselves away in a cramped three-story apartment, and they waited, hoping to outlast those who were hunting them, seeking them out, searching to find them and to kill them. They hoped that they could stay hidden away from the threat of death that quite literally was knocking at their doorstep. Church, right before today's passage, Paul has set up just how crafty sin can be. And while it's easy to recall the dark and sinful horrors of the Nazi regime, in all reality, sin is always looming. It's in our desires for more money, for more status, more influence and respect. It's looming in our pride and our fears and insecurities. And in those places, it is coming for us. It's seeking to ensnare us, to catch us. And when it does, do not be deceived. Paul makes this very clear. It will do everything it can to lead us to ruin and destruction, to our own demise. The little girl I mentioned just a moment ago was named Anne Frank. She's famous for the diaries she kept. And as many of you know, she and her family managed to last a number of years in that hidden apartment. But eventually, she and her family were discovered. They were taken away, and eventually, almost the entire family ended up dying in Nazi concentration camps. Their ruin became a reality. You see, we live in a world where it is simply not enough to hide from, to seek to outlast sinful temptation. If we sit and wait, sin will find us. And when it does, it will bring ruin and destruction into our lives. Knowing this, Paul gives us instructions in today's passage on why we are called to actively resist sin, what it looks like to actively resist sin, and why we can actively resist sin with confidence and hope. But before we move on, I think it's important to take a look at the structure of today's passage. In typical Pauline fashion, we see Paul following a familiar format of his. That's the indicative imperative. Um, indicatives are factual statements, uh, while imperatives are commands. And we find that usually 
when Paul gives us commands, or in this instance, he gives us a lot of commands, there's a lot of imperatives, uh, he pairs those commands with facts. And they're usually facts about God and our relationship with him. And to be clear, this wasn't an original idea of Paul's, uh, but Paul was following God's lead. As when we look at the way that God speaks to his people um, throughout the scripture, he also uses this indicative imperative format throughout the Old Testament. Uh, A great example is uh, you can look up the Ten Commandments when the Lord gives those and see his many truth statements before those imperatives, those commands of how to live. So in today's passage, we see Paul serving us sort of an indicative, imperative, indicative sandwich, um, and we'll take note of this as we continue on. All right, so church, if we are called to actively resist sin, maybe our first question should be, why? At the start of today's passage, Paul gives us two clauses that help to explain why we are called to take action against sin. Our first clause is, but as for you... This is quite straightforward. In reference to the previous passage, Paul is calling us to do something different from the false teachers and those who succumb to sin. His next clause, however, adds greater clarity and depth as to why this is. It reads, O man of God, here we find and come across our first indicative or fact. And fun fact, this is the only time that this phrase appears in the New Testament. However, it appears over 60 times in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see this a title applied to Moses, to Elijah, Elisha, uh, David, and to various other prophets. I found Dr. Yarborough. Uh, he's a professor at Covenant. I think possibly Dan, Pastor David, all of us had him. Uh, he's also a, a writer of a commentary on this uh, book. Uh, but he has a really helpful comment on this uh, that I found helpful, and I want to read it to you now. He states, It is unlikely to indicate that Paul saw Timothy as a new Moses, Elijah, or David, but it does invest Timothy's role and position with the gravity of a tradition in which God leads his people through chosen shepherds and teachers of his word. And since Timothy is addressed as a leader whose way of life is to be an example to all believers, there is a sense in which all believers are summoned by these words. What Paul writes is to be followed by all of God's people, albeit especially by their leader, starting with Timothy. There are two big takeaways. First, while today's passage is written specifically to Timothy, it applies to all believers. Today's message is applicable to all of us, not just teachers in the church. Second, it is relevant to all of us because we are all men and women of God. We, like Timothy, as a part of God's people, are marked by God. If Timothy was the man of God, then we are the people of God. And all throughout history, the people of God have been set apart as holy. Leviticus 20.26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Deuteronomy 7.6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So why should we resist sin? We should resist sin because that is who we are. Because we are his, God's people. And because he has made us his, we are called not just to do something different, but to be something different. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And by making us something different, something holy, set apart, by this he enables and equips us to be able to choose to resist sin. Church, do you allow yourself to rest in this truth that as a part of God's people, you have a sacred calling to be set apart, to be holy? May we begin to rest in this powerful truth in new ways today. So what does all this look like? To be men and women of God, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people set apart, a people who actively resist sin. Let's read on. We next find ourselves confronted by a bunch of imperatives or commands. Flee, pursue, fight. First, Paul instructs us to flee the sins and temptations he previously referenced in the earlier passage. Here we see the start of active resistance. It is not enough to wait and try to outlast sin, but rather as God's people, we are called to actively resist. And so the first step is to flee. The Apostle James in his epistle uses fire as an analogy for the destructive power of sin. As Paul is calling us in today's passage to flee this destructive power, I thought we could take a look at wildfires to learn a little bit about what it looks like to flee. In his book, Think Again, Adam Grant takes a moment to look at wildfire firefighters who had perished in different fires. While I'm no expert on wildfires, from what I read, these are volatile fires where the firefighters have to run to the safety of rocky terrain when the winds change. The winds can change out of seemingly nowhere, surprising the firefighters and giving them very little time or warning to get to safety. In some of the cases studied, the firefighters only needed to run about 200 feet, albeit uphill, to get to safety, but they didn't make it. Later, experts study one particular scenario in which 14 firefighters died, and they found that if they had dropped their tools in their backpacks, they could have run around 20% faster, and likely, they would have made it to safety in time. The lesson that the researchers learned is that the firefighters needed to run fast and they needed to get rid of anything that would hinder them from running their fastest. Even their tools and safety equipment that were usually considered essential for their survival. Church, we all have tools and strategies that we cling to that we believe will help us stay safe from the ravenous fires of sin and temptation. Tools and strategies that keep us from fleeing sin as fast as we possibly can. Church, what do you cling to that slows you down? Is it a belief that as long as you read your Bible and pray enough, you shouldn't be tempted? Or maybe that as long as you don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with those who do, that you will be okay? Or how about trusting in your strict boundaries? I don't watch R-rated movies, so I'll be okay. Church, it's not that those ideas are bad. Please read your Bible. Pray regularly, seek to surround yourself with good company, have standards, 
But know that even the most wise and godly strategies cannot stop the winds of change from changing at a moment's notice. They cannot stop the ravenous fire of sinful temptation coming for us to ruin and destroy. When this happens, let us not hesitate. Let us not wait to see if our strategies were enough, but let us listen to Paul and let us be ready to drop our man-made strategies and flee as if our lives depend upon it. We need to be prepared to flee and to flee as fast as we possibly can when we are confronted with the sinful temptations of the world. But if all we flee, if all we do is flee, that will not be enough. As I was thinking about this point, I couldn't get the image uh, from the end of the fifth Harry Potter book out of my head. So here it goes. At the end of the book, (coughs) excuse me, At the end of the book, Harry and his friends are fleeing a group of Death Eaters. They're the bad guys. Uh, And these these bad guys, they want them dead. And as they flee, they come upon a large circular room with closed doors set at intervals along the walls. Since they're trying to flee these Death Eaters who are trying to quick them, kill them, they quickly enter the room and close the door behind them. As soon as they do so, all the doors along the circular wall around them quickly spin around so that they don't even know which door they use to enter. Only one of the doors leads out, while all of the others lead them back to the Death Eaters, the bad guys that they're trying to flee. Harry and his friends are trying to flee death, but they don't know which direction to go, and so their attempts are futile, as they find themselves continuing to open doors that lead them right back to their enemy. It's the same way for us. If when we flee from sin, we don't flee in the right direction, then our fleeing is futile. In fact, in these cases, often we flee from one bad situation to another, from one sin to another. Church, when might this have happened to you? When might you have fled gossip only to land yourself in bitterness, contempt, pride? Or when might you have fled anger and resentment only to land yourself in the clutches of pornography? Or when might you have fled nagging and going off on your kids to find yourself checking out from them through alcohol or binging a show? Thankfully, Paul knows this reality, and so he gives us another imperative. He tells us, pursue. The direction we flee should be the same direction of our pursuit, To say that again, as we flee, we should flee with an aim in mind, pursuing something good. It's not enough just to flee, but we must be seeking to fill that distance with something good. That is because when God tells us no to one thing, he almost always tells us yes to something else. And Paul conveniently here tells us what those good yeses to pursue are. He tells us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Let's get some clarity on the meaning of these six words Paul chose. Righteousness. This has to do with our actions played out in life. Is the way we treat others honoring God's instructions to us. Godliness. This has to do with our pious posture before God. 
Do I humble myself before God and seek his ways as mine? Faith has to do with trusting God. Do I trust God to be my Lord and my Savior? Love has to do with the outworking of righteousness and faith and an affection for one another through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, do I not only do the right thing, but love and long to do the, wrong, the right thing? Steadfastness has to do with being able to persist even when things are hard, possibly even unjustly so. Am I willing to pursue righteousness, even if it means personal pain, for me and quite possibly even for those whom I love? Gentleness. The last five mentioned are common. Uh, They're included when Paul seeks to detail Christian virtues. If you read Paul's other epistles, you'll see that these virtues show up many, many times. Given the context, it's not surprising that Paul chose to include them here. However, this word for gentleness only appears in the New Testament once, right here. So I thought we would maybe take a little closer look at it. The word Paul uses here has a meaning of a sensitive and empathetic or sympathetic strength. It's the opposite of domineering. When seeking to understand its place in this list, we want to remember that Paul is speaking to Timothy, a leader in the church. As Timothy seeks to lead the church in good teaching, resisting sinful temptations for the church to go in the wrong direction, Paul is reminding him to do so in a gentle manner. Church, we live in the age of social media when gentleness definitely does not sell. It's rarely displayed by our political leaders and is often even looked down upon as weak. Paul's message here is as relevant as ever. It's countercultural advice on how to lead others. In church, it's not just pastors and elders who lead others. All of us have people in our lives, our children, our roommates, our friends, brothers and sisters, kids we serve in Awana, children's church, youth group, who we in one way or another are helping to lead in their efforts to resist sin. And so, as you do so, are you leading them in a gentle manner? Are you being compassionate toward them in their struggles, or are you harsh, impatient, lacking the care and understanding for their deep, difficult struggle against sin? We all know how difficult our own struggles to resist sinful temptation are. May we give the patience, love, and grace to others that we know we need ourselves the patience, grace, and love that first comes from our experience with God. Church, we need one another as we seek to resist the tempting offerings of sin. Let us be a church that is gentle with one another as we seek to do this hard thing together. So Paul gives us a kind of opposite alternative to the lists of sins and vices found in the preceding passage. We have Christian virtue to pursue as we flee sin. And now Paul turns to the next imperative or command. He tells us, fight the good fight of the faith. Up until now, Paul has been focusing on what we might call orthopraxy. Ortho meaning straight, right, upright. Think an orthodontist makes our teeth straight. And praxy meaning practice. So orthopraxy is right practice. 
Paul has been detailing the right practice of resisting sin as we flee it and pursue godly virtue. Here now, Paul turns to what is the foundation, the truth behind our orthopraxy, which is our orthodoxy, our right doctrine. Pastor, <coughs> excuse me. Pastor Dan has called this sermon series God's Blueprint for the Church. Now, we can have a wonderful, masterful, perfect blueprint, and its instructions could be followed perfectly, but the project could still end up a disaster. Why? Because if we are wanting to build a church, but you use the blueprint for an amusement park, no matter how faithfully and perfect you follow that perfect blueprint, you're never going to get the church you wanted. This is what Paul is getting at here. As we practice turning away from sin and towards godly virtue, we must do so with the right blueprint in mind rooted in the truth of the gospel faith. The faith that we are called to fight for is the message of the work of Jesus and what he alone has done for us on the cross, for our salvation. The only way for our sins to be forgiven is by his saving work on the cross. The good fight of the faith is our diligent clinging to and proclaiming this truth and this truth alone in a world that desperately wants to add to, to amend, or just to plain eliminate this message of life and freedom. Paul calls this fight a good fight. Church, he is so right. Let us remember today how truly good a message it is that we, while we were still sinners, dead in our sin, Christ came for us. He lived a perfect life so that he could die on the cross for our sins. And through that death on the cross, bring us eternal life. It doesn't end there because he rose from the dead three days later to defeat our enemies, sin and death. So how do we resist sin? We remember how good this truth is. And we fight to proclaim this message to ourselves and to those around us to fight the good fight of the faith in a world that is fighting to silence this good message. So how might we fight the good fight of the faith? First, I would exhort you, church, read your Bible. Read your Bible by yourself. Read your Bible with your family. Join a community group or a small group so you can read your Bible with other members of the church. The best way to fight the good fight of the faith is to constantly remind ourselves of and fill ourselves with the truth of the gospel, a truth that can be only found in the Bible. Second, I encourage you to try out Pastor Dan's Journey Evangelism, Getting the Gospel Out series. If you have neighbors or relatives, friends who don't know Jesus, you can use these booklets to come alongside of them and help them encounter the good truth of the gospel. The more we acknowledge how truly good this is, this faith we have, the more we will want to fight for those that we know and love to join us in proclaiming God's goodness. Finally, I encourage you, Speak the faith to one another. Yes, talk about the packer, talk about the weather, I guess about hunting, 
and voting and kids and family, but also go deeper. Talk to one another about what Jesus is doing for you, how he is meeting you in your daily fight against sin. Talk about what Jesus has done for you. Remind each other about what he did on the cross. Talk about the hope we have, knowing that if even we are struggling today, God has granted us tomorrow's victory. And also talk about the areas you are struggling to remember God's goodness, the areas you are failing to resist sin. That way, your brothers and sisters in Christ can help fight the good fight of the faith for you in reminding you of the truths that we all lose sight of at times. As we continue to read on, while Paul offers two more imperatives or commands, he also begins to change his vantage point. And in doing so, Paul shows us why we can resist sin and hope with confidence. Let's read on. Paul writes, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Up until this point, Paul has given commands that are rooted in the present. Flee, pursue, fight. Now, Paul offers up another imperative, to take hold. But this time, it's rooted in the past truth. How do we know this? Well, first, we start, while Paul is still using an imperative, he changes to an aorist tense. Uh, this is a, a past tense instead of the present tense imperatives that he used before. For those of you like me who are not grammar nerds, let me explain. It means, <coughs> it means that it changes the way the command is read. Instead of his previous commands that were continuing, continuous, exhorting the reader to continue to keep on fleeing, to keep on pursuing, to keep on fighting, this is read as a one-time thing. Take hold. Next, the clauses attached to the imperative help, to help us to understand more. Paul writes, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. <coughs> Timothy has already been called by God before he even took hold of eternal life. This was something that had already been done for him by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes then, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is likely referring to Timothy's proclamation of faith in Christ upon his baptism, further validating that it is already a reality in Timothy's life. So what is Paul getting at here? Paul is telling Timothy to live rooted in the reality that eternal life has been realized in his life a reality that as Christians was made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we have already attested to upon public proclamation before baptism or before receiving communion. As we seek to resist sin by fleeing it, by pursuing godly virtue and fighting the good fight of the faith, Paul is telling us to do so while living in the reality that we have eternal life that the ultimate battle has already been won. Praise God. As we actively resist sin, we get to do so, resting in the good truth that no matter how hard the fight is, no matter how severe our losses, no matter how constant the temptation, in the end, 
we will be with Jesus for all eternity. Let this truth help us to daily continue to flee, to pursue, to fight. Finally, Paul gives the reader one more imperative, this time looking to the future. Let's read what Paul writes next. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. First, Paul makes this make sure that we know that this is a very serious charge. He throws the weight of God the Father and of Jesus Christ, who he clarifies is the very originator and reason of our good confession, behind his very last imperative. Paul commands his reader, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Yikes. Basically, Paul is using the word commandment in a way that it is often used as a summary of sorts. And in this case, he's telling his reader to follow all he has instructed throughout this letter and to do so pretty much perfectly. I think we know that that's probably not going to happen. But Paul knows this, and that's why he's given uh, that even as he gives this very lofty command, he at the same time offers us our final indicative, the hope of Jesus. He reminds us that the reason for our good confession the guarantee of our forgiveness, the one who has won the ultimate battle on our behalf. He is coming back. We are waiting for the return of the king. And we get to wait with confidence and hope, knowing that any stumble we make as we actively resist sin is covered by that Jesus. And for good measure, and because he is worth it, Paul ends with a doxology an expression of praise towards Jesus, reminding us of his preeminence, his lordship, his eternality, his holiness, reminding us that he is a God worthy of putting our confidence in. Amen. Church, let us remember the goodness of our Lord and Savior today. Let us savor his return, and in doing so, in his power, let us fight the good fight of the faith, resisting sin and death until Christ returns. At the start of today's sermon, I mentioned Anne Frank and her family. Let me read to you a portion of her diaries. She writes, I've asked myself again and again whether it wouldn't have been better if we hadn't gone into hiding, if we were dead now and didn't have to go through this misery, especially so that the others could be spared the burden. But we all shrink from this thought. We still love life. We haven't yet forgotten the voice of nature, and we keep hoping, hoping for everything. Anne Frank was well acquainted with the miseries, the sinfulness, the brokenness of our world. As time went on, she also began to see the vanity of trying to outlast it all. Yet in her diaries, Anne claims to have kept on hoping. The problem is, Anne didn't really know what to hope in. And as we know, sadly, tragically, her hope was in vain. Church, our hope is not in vain. We have a king. We serve a Lord who has defeated sin and death, who is sovereign over all. We fight a battle in which the war has already been won. We know the end of the story 
And we have put our faith, our hope, in the person of Jesus. Someone we know cannot prove us wrong. Let us praise God this morning for all God has done for us and all we have hope that he will continue to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who is worthy of our hope, who is worthy of our confidence. You are the God of our salvation. We praise you for that. Lord, let us rest in you in new and deeper ways this morning. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.